Hello, everybody. Do you have an idea for a true crime podcast? I publish true crime podcasts at my YouTube channel, Leader One Studios. I currently have 23,000 subscribers who are always looking for new true crime podcasts to listen to. This is an opportunity to build an audience quickly. If you're interested in joining the Leader One Podcast Network, send an email to morgansvariety at gmail.com and we can discuss the details. Hello everybody. Gratitude to everybody for listening and additional heaps of gratitude to everybody who donates to the Patreon account. You keep the show going with your donations. As I keep the expenses paid, the more content I can create. You can donate at www.patreon.com slash leader one. Or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can send one through PayPal at morganrector331 at hotmail.com. Remember, there is no minimum donation, no maximum donation. If $1 a month is all you feel like you can manage, especially in these difficult times, it's still appreciated. Thank you for everything and enjoy the show. Welcome to Human Monsters. This is The Long Shadow. This is the first installment of a recurring segment. The title explained, just like the shadow we cast, which only presents a generalized outline of our profile, i.e. one that is limited in detail, these cases contain a limited amount of data, thereby preventing the kind of deep dive I do on regular episodes. I call these cases long shadows because though they are limited in terms of their available data, they have been so impactful that people discuss them years after they initially come to light. Please note, I will continue to release long-form deep dive episodes. Case number one, Baby Brianna, an angel born into a hell on earth. February 14th, 2002. Brianna Lopez was born to parents Stephanie Lopez and Andy Walters. Once mother and baby were dispatched from hospital, they moved into a trailer, which they shared with Stephanie's uncle, Stephen Lopez. It was a cramped living space. Aside from Stephanie, Andy, Stephen, and Brianna were two other children and three additional adults. Like all babies, Brianna cried and unfortunately the adults by which she was surrounded piled on escalating factors. From the get-go, she was subjected to physical abuse. She was slapped and pinched whenever she cried. The violence mounted. Before long, baby Brianna was kicked, punched, and thrown about like a rag doll. Naturally, her reaction was to cry even more due to these tortures. 
She received no sympathy. Stephanie ignored her. Andy and Stephen laughed at her suffering. Stephanie would reach a breaking point with the constant crying, and she began to bite Brianna like an animal mother eating her young. The abuse had not reached the apex of its brutality. At just a few weeks old, Brianna was raped vaginally and anally by Andy and Stephen. July 18, 2002. Stephanie, Andy, and Stephen got drunk. As Stephanie tells it, she went to bed after drinking a few beers. Hours later, Andy and Stephen decided to use Brianna as a plaything. They played a game with her where each tossed her up in the air high enough so that she would hit the ceiling and then crash land on the floor. Brianna cried and screamed as they played this game. Andy and Stephen were as amused by her anguish as they were by the game itself. In the morning, Stephanie woke and found that Brianna was crying. This was not unusual. She discovered freshly inflicted cuts and bruises on Brianna and chose to turn a blind eye. Later in the morning, Andy changed Brianna's diaper. As he did so, he wrapped a wipe around his finger and molested her. Brianna's overall condition was not only critical, coming close to the brink of death, but not only did nobody submit her to treatment by medical authorities, but she was not the recipient of anybody's compassion. Stephanie finally called 911. She told the operator that Brianna fell from a high chair. Brianna was declared dead at 11.10 a.m. She was five months old. Medical professionals reported the findings from their examination of Brianna's body. Bruises all over her body. Broken ribs. Broken legs. Broken arms. Bleeding on the brain. Vaginal laceration. Anal laceration. Not a day went by when Brianna wasn't subjected to some form of torture. She was never loved, protected, or provided even an adequate level of care. One Sergeant Ed Miranda described the sexual abuse she endured as, quote, grotesque and gross. Andy Walters was charged with child abuse resulting in death and criminal sexual penetration of a minor. Stephanie was charged with child abuse resulting in death. The three other adults were not charged. The two other children living in the home were taken into protective custody. Two more relatives of Brianna's were prosecuted. Her grandmother, Patricia Walters, and her uncle, Robert Walters Jr., were charged with failure to report child abuse or child neglect. September 2003, the trial began. It was the prosecution's contention that all five adults who resided in the home were privy to the abuse and enabled its occurrence. The two occupants who did not directly abuse Brianna claimed they were unaware of what was inflicted on her. Among those who testified were the ambulance dispatcher and an emergency room nurse. The nurse tried desperately to save Brianna's life.
A recording from the 911 call was played for the court. Stephanie told the operator that Brianna was not breathing and that she fell off the bed. The operator instructed Stephanie on how to perform CPR and check for a pulse. Stephanie responded by saying, I can't feel anything. Nurse Yvonne Mouchette explained to the jury that when Brianna was brought into the hospital, she presented with numerous bite marks and bruises on her face, head, and across the rest of her body. She attempted to resuscitate her, even though it was already clear that it was too late. Mouchette said that Stephanie was brought to the hospital before she was taken to the police station. She was permitted to have a look at Brianna's body. According to the nurse, when Stephanie held Brianna in her arms, she said repeatedly, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Stephanie followed up by asking if she could cover Brianna's bruises. She covered everything but Brianna's eyes. Such was the nature of the extensive injuries visited upon her. Detective Miranda described to the jury the interview he conducted with Brianna's uncle, Stephen. He said Stephen admitted he raped Brianna. He also copped to throwing her up in the air and letting her drop to the floor. Miranda said to him, Did you have sex with baby Brianna? Stephen simply said, Yes. When Miranda asked about how Andy and Stephen approached throwing Brianna up into the air, Stephen said, We were just playing with her. Homer Campbell, a forensic dentist, testified. He identified 15 bite marks across Brianna's body. He determined that they were made by at least two adults. He couldn't identify the individual assailants as the bites were not sufficiently distinct. A crime lab analyst testified that blood found in Andy's underwear was tested. It had been drawn from Brianna. Further clarification was given by supervising medical investigator Rebecca Irvine, who testified that Brianna suffered injuries to her skull, arm, leg, ribs, face, head, and genitalia. All five adult members of the family were found guilty. Andy and Stephen for criminal sexual penetration, child abuse resulting in death, and other related charges. Stephanie for negligent child abuse resulting in death and a similar abuse charge. She was found not guilty of intentional child abuse. Patricia and Robert were found guilty for their failure to report the abuse. Andy's attorney, Gary Mitchell, described the mass prosecution as an injustice. Andy Walters was sentenced to 63 years in prison. Stephen Lopez was sentenced to 57 years in prison. Stephanie Lopez was sentenced to 26 years in prison. She was released in 2016 for good behavior. Expenses related to Brianna's funeral and burial were footed by citizens of the municipality in which she lived. Her body was claimed by them since nobody else stepped forward. Brianna's grave became a memorial site where visitors left flowers and toys. This was apparently offensive to Brianna's family as they placed a cage around her grave 
to prevent any future demonstrations of love for Brianna by the public. Case number two, Kellyanne Bates. One girl's quest for love leads to unfathomable torment. The victim, Kellyanne Bates, was born on May 18, 1978, in Hattersley, Greater Manchester, England. The villain, James Patterson Smith, born 1947 or 1948. James Smith was unemployed and divorced. He was living in the Gorton district of Manchester. He has been described as a straight-edge, well-groomed teetotaller. His marriage ended in 1980 because he had been physically abusive towards his wife. This pattern continued in his next relationship, that being with 20-year-old Tina Watson. From 1980 to 1982, he made a punching bag out of her, even going as far as beating her while she was pregnant with their child. As she described it, at first it was now and again, just a little tap, but in the end it was every day. He would smack me in the face or hit me over the head with an ashtray. He would kick me in the legs or between the legs. Another incident had James attempting to drown Tina while she was taking a bath. James and Tina broke up in 1982. Smith's next victim was 15-year-old Wendy Mottershead. He abused her as well. Consistent with his vintage, he once held her head under water in the kitchen sink as a measure to drown her. She survived the attack. 1993, the year James Smith met Kelly Bates. She was 14 years old. He met her through friends for whom she was babysitting. Kelly moved in with James two years after finishing school. She concealed the age disparity from her parents, Tommy and Margaret. Margaret wasn't exactly taken with Smith, as she noted, As soon as I saw Smith, the hairs on the back of my neck went up. I tried everything I could to get Kellyanne away from him. Kelly left Smith briefly after several heated arguments. They later reconciled. Her parents discovered bruises on her. Kelly claimed they resulted from accidents. Kelly's disposition changed. She became introverted and withdrawn, even going so far as quitting her part-time job. In March 1996, her parents received greeting cards for their anniversaries and birthdays, but only James had written the salutations. Once, Kelly's brother went to the Smith home to visit Kelly. He was told by James that she was not home. One day when a neighbor, concerned about Kelly, asked about her, James simply showed them an upstairs window at which she made a brief appearance. April 16, 1996, James Smith reported to first responders that he accidentally killed his girlfriend during an argument in the bathtub. He claimed she inhaled water and died after he attempted to resuscitate her. He also alleged that she regularly pretended to be unconscious. When police arrived at Smith's residence, they found Kelly's naked body in a bedroom. Drops of her blood were speckled throughout the house. The autopsy reported over 150 separate injuries were visited upon Kelly. During the previous month, she had been kept tied up by Smith. Sometimes he would tie her by her hair to a radiator 
or to furniture. Other times he would tie her by her neck with a ligature. The pathologist William Lawler commented on his post-mortem findings. In my career, I have examined almost 600 victims of homicide, but I have never come across injuries so extensive. Among the injuries, scalding to her buttocks, scalding to her left leg, burns on her thigh made with a hot iron, a broken arm, multiple stab wounds made by scissors, forks, and knives, stab wounds inside her mouth, crushing injuries to her hands, mutilation of her nose, ears, eyebrows, mouth, lips, and genitalia, wounds made with a spade, wounds made with pruning shears. Both eyes were gouged out. Stab wounds were made to the empty eye sockets. Partial scalping. The pathologist found that her eyes had been removed, quote, not less than five days and not more than three weeks before her death. Kelly was starved. She lost about 44 pounds. She received no water or beverage of any kind for several days before she died. Prosecutor Peter Openshaw said, It was as if he deliberately disfigured her, causing her the utmost pain, distress, and degradation. The injuries were not the result of one sudden eruption of violence. They must have been caused over a long period and were so extensive and so terrible that the defendant must have deliberately and systematically tortured the girl. Drowning was determined to be the cause of death. Soon before she drowned, she was stricken about the cranium with a shower head. At the trial, James Smith denied that he killed Kelly. He said she, quote, would put me through hell, winding me up. He alleged that Kelly taunted him about his dead mother and had, quote, a bad habit of hurting herself to make it look worse on me. When he was asked about why he blinded, stabbed, and beat Kelly, he said, she dared him to do it. One Jillian Mezzi, a consultant psychiatrist, analyzed Smith and said he had, quote, a severe paranoid disorder with morbid jealousy, and that he lived in a, quote, distorted reality. The jury only took an hour to find James Smith guilty as charged. He was sentenced to life. The judge recommended that he serve a minimum of 20 years. The judge made it clear to Smith how he felt about him. This has been a terrible case, a catalog of depravity by one human being upon another. You are a highly dangerous person. You are an abuser of women, and I intend, so far as it is in my power, that you will abuse no more. So disturbing was the photographic evidence of Kelly Bates's injuries that the jury was provided with therapy to cope with the trauma. Case number three, Jennifer Doherty. All she wanted was friendship. She got gypped. The victim, Jennifer Lee Doherty, was born on November 8, 1979, in Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania. 
Jennifer was mentally disabled. At the age of 30, she was as mature as a typical 14-year-old. Her parents leaned on her to move out of their home and live independently. This was something for which Jennifer was unprepared due to the effects of her disability. They would later regret pressuring her to do so. Despite this pressure, Jennifer was excited about moving into her first apartment. As she wrote on her MySpace profile, This is my time to make a new start for myself and making new friends and not being afraid of anything. This was the last message she posted. In the town of Greensburg, Jennifer became friends with 17-year-old Angela Marinucci. Despite the age disparity, the two became close and would talk on the phone for hours. They likely bonded over the fact that both of them had disabilities. Angela acquired a brain injury at the age of 15. The effects of the impact on her cognitive function were no doubt familiar to Jennifer. In a world that was not prepared to be patient with people who suffer from cognitive deficits, they drew comfort from each other. Having become best friends, Angela invited Jennifer to a sleepover. Jennifer was happy to be invited. The Perpetrators Amber Meidinger and Melvin Knight were transients who met at a homeless shelter in the state of Washington in January 2010. They traveled throughout the country, settling in Greensburg. There they met Jennifer Doherty. Melvin Knight had learning disabilities and behavioral problems after falling out of a moving vehicle and hitting his head at the age of five. Angela Lynn Marinucci was listed as an assailant. Amber Meidinger was known to Jennifer Doherty because of her affiliation with an organization called West Place, which provides services to people with special needs. Ricky Van Edward Smearns was born to a sex worker mother and gang member father. He experienced abuse and neglect as a child and developed mental health issues. He was diagnosed as having seven different personalities and a total of 15 psychiatric issues. In 1997, he broke into a neighbor's home and stole knives, guitars, coins, bullets, and a cash hoard. Later that year, he raped a woman in her basement. Smearns met Melvin Knight in jail. Peggy Miller and Robert Masters were accessories. February 10th, the night of the sleepover. Aside from Jennifer and Angela, there were five attendees. Peggy Miller, Amber Meininger, Ricky Smearns, Melvin Knight, and Robert Masters. Along with Angela Marinucci, they would become known as the Greensburg Six. Jennifer had met most of them before and regarded them as friends, though she was much older and could not be considered a peer. A motive has never been stated, but soon after Jennifer arrived, the other attendees began to bully her. A common explanation is that Jennifer joked about having sex with Ricky Smearns, then Angela Marinucci's boyfriend, triggering Angela's wrath. Another theory has it that it was a hate crime motivated by an inability to tolerate Jennifer as a mentally disabled person. Either way, the attack on Jennifer began with verbal abuse and it would escalate into devastating levels of brutality that stretched out over a period of 30 hours. Among the tortures to which Jennifer was subjected, being forcibly stripped, 
raped by Melvin Knight, beaten with several household objects, such as a metal towel rack and soda bottles, beaten with crutches. Her head was shaved. Her face was coated in nail polish. Cooking spices were poured into her eyes, causing them to sting. She was bound with Christmas lights and forced to stand, posing as a Christmas tree, having items stolen from her purse, having liquids poured into her purse. Throughout this ordeal, Jennifer asked them why they were doing it. She begged them to stop. Neighbors testified that they heard screaming coming from the apartment. Amber Mindinger testified about the agenda behind Jennifer's tormentor's actions. The plan was, we were trying to embarrass her, humiliate her, make her feel belittled. Occasionally, there would be a moment of rest where Jennifer's so-called friends would regroup and decide on what to inflict on Jennifer next. During these meetings, Jennifer was left tied up and gagged in a closet. At one point, Jennifer tried her utmost to fight back. She kicked Amber she kicked Amber in the stomach as hard as she could. Amber told her she was pregnant. Melvin told Jennifer that anybody who kicks a pregnant woman in the stomach deserves to die. Jennifer's punishments for kicking Amber in the stomach. Drinking urine. Eating feces. Eating detergent. She was forced into a shower because she smelled bad after being urinated and defecated on. About this time, Jennifer's sister Joy tried calling her phone. When the call went to voicemail, the message went, You've reached the phone of Melvin and Amber. During the final group meeting, all conspirators agreed to murder Jennifer. Their reasoning was that if they didn't, she would likely report what they had done to her. They forced Jennifer to write a fake suicide note. Melvin Knight and Ricky Smearns brought Jennifer to the bathroom. Melvin stabbed her over 20 times with a steak knife. When they went in to check on her later, she was still alive. The two men slashed her wrists and finished her off with strangulation. Sure that she was dead, Ricky and Melvin put Jennifer's remains in a garbage bag and placed it in a trash can. They brought the can to Greensburg Salem Middle School and concealed it underneath a truck. The owner of the truck discovered Jennifer's body the following morning and called 911. Denise Murphy, Jennifer's mother, was brought in to identify the body. To quote Denise, I was in total shock and still in total denial. I just couldn't imagine how that could happen to her. All of the perpetrators were brought to justice almost immediately. Prosecutors stated their intention to seek the death penalty against Amber Meininger, Ricky Smearns, and Melvin Knight. Amber was later permitted to plead guilty to lesser charges under the proviso that she testify against the other assailants. It turned out Amber really was pregnant with Melvin's baby. The baby was delivered in prison and adopted by a foster family. Peggy Miller and Robert Masters were not accused of being involved in the torture and murder of Jennifer Doherty, since neither of them touched or harmed her in any way. Still, under Pennsylvania law, they could still be charged with murder. 
Peggy stated that she regretted her role in the killing. To quote Peggy, I am sorry and I am guilty. She was my friend and I should not have voted for her to die. It should be noted that during the last 30 hours of her life, Jennifer was left alone with Peggy and Robert while the others left the house. She begged them to help her, but they refused. Ricky Smearns and Melvin Knight were sentenced to death. They remain on death row. Peggy Miller, Amber Meininger, and Robert Masters were given long prison sentences. Robert will only be eligible after serving 30 years, Peggy after 35 years, and Amber after 40 years. While seeking a pardon, Amber said, I am seeking clemency because I want to be granted a second chance at living my life outside. Case number four. The so-called otaku murderer and human Dracula, Sutomu Miyazaki. Sutomu Miyazaki was born on August 21, 1962, in Itsu Kaichi, Tokyo. He was the oldest son born into a wealthy family. His family operated a regional newspaper company. His was a premature birth, and he suffered from a rare birth defect, which resulted in a fusion of his hand joints. This prevented him from being able to bend his wrists upward. He was primarily raised by his grandfather and a male nanny who was intellectually disabled. Sutomu was bullied in elementary school because of his deformity. The experience affected him deeply, diminishing his self-esteem and leading him to becoming introverted. In high school, Sutomu was an academic star for a while, but inexplicably his efforts in this area went on a sharp decline and his grade point average plummeted. He was therefore ineligible to attend university, where he would have studied English and become a teacher. He enrolled in a junior college, where he studied to become a photography technician. In the mid-1980s, Tsutomu moved back into his parents' home. He had shared a room with his older sister. Despite the high level of financial security his family enjoyed, he had no interest in taking over his father's print shop. At this time, Tsutomu was a troubled man and badly wanted to share his problems with his parents. He felt he couldn't turn to them for support because they were more preoccupied with the pursuit of money and material things and were unsentimental. He felt they would not have been willing to listen to him and his problems would have gone ignored. At one point, his pain and loneliness had driven him to thoughts of suicide. He was supported by his grandfather but rejected by his two younger sisters. Sutomu's grandfather died in May of 1988, which exacerbated his depression and feeling of isolation. As a measure to retain some part of his grandfather, he ate some of his ashes. It was about this time when one of his sisters caught him watching her as she took a shower. When she told him to leave, he attacked her. When his mother found out about it, she told him to focus more on work and spend less time on watching his videotapes, which consisted mostly of horror films and pornography, much of it in the manga and anime mediums. He assaulted her. August 1988 to June 1989, the period when Miyazaki committed what became known as the Little Girl Murders. August 22, 1988, 
One day after his 26th birthday, four-year-old Mary Kono disappeared while playing at a friend's house. Her father called the police after efforts to locate her failed. What transpired was Miyazaki led her into his car and drove westward from Tokyo. He parked the car under a bridge in a forested area. He sat beside her for a half hour before finally killing her. He molested her corpse. He dumped her remains in the hills near his home. He took her clothes with him. He returned to her corpse a few days after it had begun to decompose. He removed her hands and feet. He kept them in his closet. He burned the rest of her bones in his furnace. He followed up by grinding them into powder, placing them in a box, along with many of her teeth, photos of her clothes, and a postcard onto which he wrote, Mary, cremated, bones, investigate, prove. August 3rd, 1988, Miyazaki kidnapped seven-year-old Masami Yoshizawa. He saw her as he drove along a country road. He offered her a drive and she accepted. He took her to the same location where he killed Mary Kono. Miyazaki killed Masami. He molested and defiled her corpse. He took her clothes with him when he left. December 12, 1988. Miyazaki kidnapped four-year-old Erika Namba while she was returning home from a friend's house. Miyazaki forced her into his car and took them to a parking lot in Naguri. He forced her to disrobe in the back seat. He took photos of her in the nude. He killed her, tied her hands and feet behind her back, and covered her with a bed sheet. He put her body in the trunk of the car. He threw her clothes away in a wooded area and left her body in a parking lot nearby. It was discovered three days later. December 20th, Erica's family received a postcard bearing a message spelled out with letters cut out of magazines. Erica, cold, cough, throat, rest, death. June 6th, 1989. Miyazaki persuaded five-year-old Ayeko Nomoto to let him take photos of her. Having finished with that, he led her into his car, where he murdered her. He concealed her corpse with a bedsheet and deposited her remains in the trunk. Miyazaki brought Ayeko's corpse to his apartment, where he spent the subsequent two days molesting and having sex with it. He documented her dead, naked body with still photos and video, contorting her body into various sexual positions. When Ayako's body began to decompose, Miyazaki dismembered it and left the torso in a cemetery. He tossed her head in a spot amid some hills nearby. He kept her hands, drinking blood from them. Having drained them of blood, he ate what was left. He was concerned that the police would find Ayoko's body parts, so he returned to the cemetery and the hills two weeks later and brought the remains back to his apartment. He hid them in his closet. July 23, 1989. Miyazaki spotted two sisters playing in a park in Hashioji. He managed to separate them, luring the younger girl away. He convinced her to remove her clothes, whereupon he took photographs of her. 
It was then that the girl's father found them and attacked Miyazaki, who was unable to restrain him. Miyazaki was able to escape on foot, but he was detained by police when he returned to his car. Miyazaki's home was searched. 5,763 videotapes were found. Among them were anime and slasher films. He cited the slasher films as contributing to his bloodlust. Among these items were video footage and still photos of his victims. March 30, 1990. Throughout his arrest and trial, Sutomu came across with an air of detachment, seemingly unaffected by the proceedings. He often said strange things, making little sense. He blamed his actions on an alter ego he called Rat Man. He claimed Rat Man forced him to kill. He even drew a picture of Rat Man as a cartoon. His father refused to pay for his legal costs. He committed suicide in 1994. Though Sutomu was found by psychoanalysts to be mentally ill, he was still determined to know the difference between right and wrong. He was also considered capable of assuming responsibility for his actions. Bizarrely, he described the murders as an, quote, act of benevolence. April 14, 1997. Sutomu Miyazaki was sentenced to death. June 17, 2008. A death warrant was signed, and Sutomu Miyazaki was hanged at the Tokyo Detention House the same day. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.